According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth once again comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 6. We've been uh, looking at ants in uh, verses 6 through 11 now for uh, several weeks, and uh, we ought to be able to wrap that up today and move on to the Belial in verse 12 and following. The worthless person, a wicked man, is one who walks with a perverse mouth. And we'll move to that next to that next section. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness once again, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Proverbs chapter 6. We have really an assortment of issues that uh, fall under the heading of uh, parental wisdom, uh, as has been the case in all these chapters, chapters 1 through 9, we have the heading of parental wisdom. And uh, so far through oh, ch- chapter 5 or so, a lot of it has centered on sex, a lot of it is centered on uh, immorality and other things in which a young person can get in a whole lot of trouble in, uh, in a hurry. Chapter 6 also addresses other issues uh, that young, get young people in trouble in a hurry, including money. And uh, money, uh, if you don't handle it properly, if you don't handle finances the way the Bible calls for us to handle our finances, then we have very real consequences to that in temporal life living, as well as spiritual life living. Because uh, financially, if, if in temporal life we're maladjusted and they're struggling uh, as a part of consequences, well, then it's going to impact spiritual life as well. We're not going to have the opportunity to serve the Lord in some respects that we ought to uh, because of our own, our own foolishness. And so in this, turning to uh, financial matters, as parental wisdom turns to financial matters, the first section of which, verses 1 through 5, is warning us not to uh, be ensnared by the financial entanglements of others, okay? That there, are, there is a family that we are a part of, and that is where our entanglements naturally arise. Uh, the family is where our obligations and duties fall, not friends, not neighbors, and uh, to be entangled in those things financially is an issue. And in fact, it's a prohibition, and we're told to deliver yourself in verse 3. No matter how embarrassing it is, no matter what you need to do, no matter what it costs you in your uh, pride or shame or financially or whatever else, you must get out of those financial entanglements immediately. The second financial area is verses uh, 6 through 11, and this is where we're told to look to the ant, O sluggard, that the second financial admonition is a warning against laziness. The warning against laziness in verses 6 through 11. And personal laziness has consequences. And uh, how long can you survive as a sluggard? Well, (laughs) how long will you lie down, O sluggard? You know, hunger is a marvelous motivation. And as the Bible says, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. Uh, There are finite limits to how lazy a person can be. Uh, And uh, the finite limit is how long they can go without food and uh, the, the great motivation that, uh, that that becomes. And yet uh, the question is asked in a sing-song type of taunt, and in uh, this aspect, uh, how long will you lie down, O sluggard, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And that's always the answer, just a little more, just a little more, just five more minutes, just one more snooze alarm, all right? But the idea is, is that we keep insisting it's just a little bit more, it's just a little bit more, but 50 times later of just a little bit more, look what you have sacrificed uh, in terms of what is not laid up in heaven and what is not glorifying Jesus Christ, because that time dimension is the one that, remember, is, is one, one direction only. It's, it's advancing forward through the time stream, one hour per hour, one day per day, one year per year, and we can't turn back the clock. The time that's lost is permanently lost. And so this section shows how your, uh, the vagabonds, 
The poverty and need, this is point E in the outline, sub-point E under main point two. Poverty and need are the vagabonds and ruffians of the undisciplined life. They show up and you're not happy that they're there and uh, you'd you'd like to uh, not have them there in terms of uh, the vagabonds and the ruffians that we encounter in our culture and society today. But this is what they're called here in verse 11. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. And who do you have to blame for that? You only have yourself to blame for that because these are the divinely administered consequences for your poor choices, for your failure to apply the wisdom that God has made available in His Word. And uh, the illustration, I think, is, is pretty, uh, pretty stark. Now, uh, I think we got through most of this. Uh, poverty itself is not a sin. Poverty itself is not evil. Uh, but the manner in which it arrives is the real problem. If you are diligent, if you are hardworking, if you're applying all the wisdom in the world and uh, doing everything right, God may still assign to you humble circumstances. He may still assign to you very uh, modest means and very, um, you know, a, a very humble uh, tax bracket, if you will. That's his business, all right? It's, that's not, uh, those humble circumstances are not a reflection of laziness. And we want to be clear on that. I think there's a tendency to look at every poor person and say, well, it's their fault, they're just lazy, they should have worked harder. That's not the case, all right? And any more than it's the case of looking at someone with a physical disease or a sickness and saying, well, they're under divine discipline. This disease is a consequence of sin. That's, sometimes that can happen, but that's not always the case. We want to be cautious that we're not in the, in the Job accuser syndrome, right? Where Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and these critics show up and just automatically assign laziness as the cause for the poverty. All right? And unless we know otherwise, let's not make such an assumption. So uh, laziness does cause poverty, but it's not the only cause. And there may be other testing circumstances in which the father chooses to limit the... Uh, the wealth of any particular believer at any particular time. So poverty is not evil in itself, but the manner in which it arrives, that becomes the real problem. Secondly, of course, the idea of need is the idea of a lack. Anything that you need is something that uh, there's a deficiency or there's a lack. And we have the uh, Hebrew vocabulary to back this up. The verb is chaser, uh, the noun machasor the different concept there. And of course, we can look at lack, we can look at need in two different ways. Uh, and it's useful, it's fruitful. We, we sometimes go through this exercise with our children and try to uh, draw the distinction for them between what they need and what they want, <laughs> all right? Because wants and needs are not the same thing. And they may act like they need the, the newest cell phone on the market, but what they, the truth is, is what, that's what they want. They don't need... Um, Whatever, okay? Fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be a cell phone. Maybe it's whatever else that is the end of the world to these teenagers if they don't have it, okay? Well, that's one way. Want versus need. I get that. But how about need versus need? Can we draw that contrast? There's different ways to consider need, all right? Because in the physical realm, there's needs. In the spiritual realm, there's really one need, and God supplies it. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And that uh, favorite Bible verse for a whole lot of folks, I think, misquotes it because they put needs in the plural in the English translation when in reality it's a singular in the Greek. My God shall supply all your need. And there's really only one need, and that's what we have in Christ, and God the Father supplies it. Anything else in terms of what we think is a need, right? And our contentment that the Bible describes about if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And all of the the, the whole spectrum of what the Bible brings to focus on Christian finances, I think, is, is significant because it helps us to identify what the real needs, financial needs actually are. And realizing that if he withholds it, we don't need it. That no good thing does he withhold from those who, who, who love him. And we have the promises there. The lions, the young lions do suffer want and hunger, but, but uh, those who fear the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. No good thing does he withhold. Every good thing comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And so as those who are daily walking with the Lord and daily dependent upon him, uh, the concept of need is one that... Uh, 
uh, really for the, the prime faith rest application. We know, God knows what we need before we even ask. So we have uh, the great assurances of these promises that hopefully are uh, an encouragement to us all. Under point three, we talked about the hobos, the vagabonds, the drifters, the rovers, the wanderers, the pedestrians. Okay, why do we have so many terms for these these folks? <laughs> okay, uh, clochards—that's a French derivation. I don't enjoy pronouncing it. Derelicts, gangrels, tramps. Okay, we have uh, these are among the vibrant tapestry of multicultural expressions for those who wander from place to place without a fixed home. Okay, now poverty is not a sin per se. What about homelessness? What about a vagrant? What is the, uh, is, is this a sin? Is it wrong to not be where God has called you to be, where God has placed you to be? In the geographic will of God, where should you be? All right. In the geographic will of God. Well, clearly, um, <laughs> uh, you should be somewhere in proximity to Austin Bible Church. Because this is the lampstand that, that uh, Jesus Christ has assigned to you as the head of the church. If you accept Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 5 as valid applications, then you understand that every soul has been allotted to a shepherd. And that the chief shepherd holds those shepherds accountable for the shepherding of those souls. And so in the geographic will of God, you start to evaluate. And you say, wow, I belong to an earthly shepherd and I am to be submitted under his authority for the teaching of the word of God. And once you know who Jesus Christ has allotted you to, then a whole lot of other things start to fall into place. All right? And you say, it's the geographic will of God that I ought to be uh, within proximity of whatever my patience is for driving to, uh, to Austin Bible Church. All right? And then beyond that, the job you take, the, the, the house you live in, or apartment, or condo, or tent, or RV, or whatever, okay? Those are just details. Those are just absolute details. The, the issue is, where do I belong, okay? As a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I belong in a local church. Now, that's in the ecclesiastical realm. That's in the realm of the church. What about in secular life? All right, well, where do I belong? What is my earthly citizenship? See, if I'm American, I belong in America. If I'm Russian, I belong in Russia. If I'm, in, if I'm Mexican, I belong in Mexico. I'm going to get in trouble here, aren't I? If I'm Filipino, I belong in the Philippines. Okay, because again, God is in control. He divided the nations. He established the boundaries, his sovereignty. Uh, what does Acts 17 say? And then this is kind of a long way to illustrate point three, but I think it's significant given current events. <laughs> Acts 17 Look with me there and put your finger on it. And um, understand that God's in charge of this. And part of his sermon here on Mars Hill, uh, he's talking to these men about their unknown God. And notice what he says in verse 26, Acts 17, 26. Are you with me? All right. I don't hear pages flipping, but you're touching screens evidently. All right. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So as far as the races are concerned, there's only one, the human race. But from, from Adam, or from Noah if you prefer, we all descend from the same patriarch. And yet, we don't all live in the same place. Every nation, every and the difference between an ethnos and a genos and, a, and uh, different terms, but every nation of mankind to live on, not all in America, on the face of the earth, having determined, God's in charge, their appointed times and the boundaries of what? Their habitation, okay? So it's about our habitation. And this is the problem with the vagabonds. This is the problem with the uh, hobos, the rovers, the wanderers, the pedestrians, the different, what is their habitation, Okay? And if they don't have a habitation, then how do they interface with those who have habitations in their proximity? Okay, 
And this also becomes, I think, part of why we're dealing with this in a section of Proverbs that focuses on the financial entanglements and focuses on the laziness and focuses on what causes the societal breakdown. Okay? And so God is in charge of the habitations. And if, if, um, uh, and then of course this doesn't deny that there's such a thing as legal uh, immigration. If Ruth is going to stop being a Moabitess, if she is going to leave the land of Moab, and if she's going to uh, immigrate and marry into Israel, well then what does she say? My God, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Right? And she becomes a part of the nation of Israel. She becomes, you know, a foremother of the Christ. You know, great-grandmother of, of uh, David. And, uh, and a tremendous, uh, a tremendous hero in the Old Testament, but not because she was a Moabitess but because she forsook those people. She identified now with the people of God. Same thing with Uriah the Hittite. Okay? You know, he didn't view himself as a hyphenated Hittite Israeli, okay, or whatever the, the case may be. He became one of David's mighty men, became a great hero for Israel. And yet he was a Hittite by birth. And so these different issues. Now, where do I belong? Where do I live? Not only in my nationality, but how do I operate within that nationality? Am I subject to the governing authorities that are over me, the national authorities, the state or province authorities, the local authorities, and so forth? Where do I fit within the authority structure of these nations? All right? And this is the problem with vagabonds, rovers, wanderers, vagrants, and and all the rest. For, for society to function together, we operate under the sovereignty that God has delegated. All right? And in terms of uh, the, you know, the, the taxes we pay and the municipal uh, governance that we support and all the other functions of a civil society, do we really want to go to the third world? <laughs> we want to go to warlord justice? All right? What is he designed? Volition, marriage, family, okay? But then beyond the walls of the family, beyond the, the household, beyond family, what does God design? Nations in the civil, civil government. That's right. And so how do we operate? And, and, and it's not just on a national basis, but provinces, and for Israel it was tribes, all right? But even tribes had clans, and clans had villages. So it was down to the local level that you would meet in the gate. When, uh, when, uh, one more side trip. Uh, the book of Ruth, all right? When Boaz was going to ratify the uh, redemption of Ruth, what did he do? Joshua judges Ruth. He went to the gate, the gate of the city, and he approaches uh, Knucklehead, okay? In Ruth chapter 4. Boaz went... uh, Ruth chapter 4, Boaz went to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Bible doesn't tell us his name, and I'm thankful for that. Because uh, if we knew his name, we'd be laughing at him for all eternity. And we'd get to heaven and go, oh, you're that guy. So he's safely anonymous for all eternity. Turn aside here and sit down. He turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down here. And as soon as he grabs these ten men from the city and has them sit, Knucklehead, the first man that he had sit down, knows, uh-oh, <laughs> something's up, right? This is, uh, we have a quorum. Business is being conducted. And these are the procedures here. So he said to the closest relative, uh, Naomi has come back from the land of Moab which, and has a, to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech, our kinsman Elimelech, So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. In other words, everything is done publicly. Everything is done according to procedure, according to the civil government. It's all going to be legal. It's all going to be documented in the system that they had in that day. Now, a vagrant, a wanderer, a hobo, somebody that's just passing through has no part in this. By the way, I think the men of Sodom considered Lot a vagrant, considered Lot an outsider. Like, you're not one of us. Who are you to be a judge over us? They viewed him as, a, as an outsider, as a vagrant and as a wanderer. 
They didn't view him as participating in the civic life of, of Sodom. And I, that's not a bad thing in my book, but <laughs> anyway, it'd be a problem if Lot ran for mayor. And, and uh, anyway, so there's different passages that we can turn to on this. The point is, let me get back to Proverbs 6 now. The vagrants and the, and the armed men are out of the will of God for their placement within the laws of divine establishment. If you are where you're supposed to be, all right, if you are where you're supposed to be, and this is why, you know, um, and even the concept of homelessness as an aspect, where, where is your habitation? Not only just do you have shelter for the night, but where do you identify with as belonging? Your sense of community for the mutual reciprocal support okay, of that community. I'm not talking financial support and that, that family is entitled to, but self-defense, the, the uh, defense of a, of, a, of a village, you know, manning your place on the wall in a, in a village or in a, in a town, uh, the taxes that you pay to support that town, all right? What, uh, what, what contributions are made by the vagrants to the wealth of a, of a community? And the answer is a trick question. The answer is none. They contribute nothing. They actually draw from and don't contribute to. So this is the issue here. And that's why laziness becomes the, uh, the snare that it becomes. Because poverty arrives like a vagabond, and then what are you going to do with it? And your need then comes like an armed man. And the, uh, when the begging is insufficient, vagrants turn to banditry. Vagrants turn to banditry. It doesn't take long. It does not take long. Did we look at these verses last week? No. Okay. Did we look at those verses last week? Okay, cool. Just checking. Seeing if you're paying attention. Somebody said, well, why don't you know what we covered last week? Because I don't listen to myself. I (laughs) I don't remember. All right. When begging is insufficient, vagrants turn to banditry. And this also, I think, speaks to the concept of begging. Begging in contrast with sacrificial love, charitable giving, uh, generosity on the part of a family and a clan. All right? That's different than begging. You know, the, uh, the, the voluntary contribution that sees a person in need and offers a, uh, uh, anything, that is a sacrifice on the part of the giver, all right? But the actual act of begging, particularly if it's long-term and particularly if it's, if it's uh, uh, predatory upon a location, upon a city or a village or, or so forth, um, that's not charity. That's not love. That's not grace. It's actually defiance of God's laws of divine establishment. The better thing is to take a person off the streets where he's not a vagrant anymore, get him on his feet, get him self-sufficient on an individual basis. Again, individuality, marriage, family, nations. You've got to start on that individual self-sufficiency. All right. When begging is insufficient, vagrants turn to banditry. And, and that becomes a problem, you know, and, and so you end up with petty theft, you end up with armed uh, assault, you end up with armed robbery, you end up with a lot of pressure. Some of these vagrants can get very um, difficult, very confrontational in, uh, in certain ways. Look down to the end of this chapter, or towards the end. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. You know, it's understandable that, a, that a, a starving human will do what he thinks he needs to do to not starve. And at least it's understandable. And so as far as you don't despise the, the need to eat, uh, it is despicable that a man would commit adultery with his neighbor's wife because that's not life-threatening. <laughs> you know, that's just stupid. You know, committing adultery, you're out of your mind. You're lacking sense. Uh, but... That's, that's verse 32. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. It's self-destructive. He would destroy himself. Who does it? But as far as a thief is concerned, if he's hungry, if he's starving, okay, I get that. 
I get that with, with no other options available to you, you're going to do what you do to, to eat. And that's why you need a solution to poverty. You need a solution to the vagrants. You don't just need to excuse what they're doing and turn them into a special interest group. You need to actually solve the problem. They need to identify with a habitation. And they need to become sub- submitted to the authority over that habitation. And I think in a lot of cases, that's what they don't like. <laughs> All right. Exodus chapter 20. By the way, I have uh, a lot of background through the jail and different things with uh, the vagrant population of Austin. And, and they flat out say they don't like the shelters. They don't like the adult rehabilitation center that Salvation Army operates. Uh, too many rules. They, they're not allowed to do drugs. They're not allowed to drink. They're not allowed to smoke. They have to clean up after they leave, before they leave. Um, they, just, they, just, they, don't, they don't like that authority. They'd rather just sleep under a bridge somewhere, find a, a tent, a little campsite that they have in different places. And so what it really comes down to is it's a rejection of authority. What are you doing? All right, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. Well, obviously, thou shalt not steal. Okay, stealing is a crime. Stealing is a sin. It's understandable for the starving. It's understandable for the poor. He's not to be despised for that sake alone. But clearly you can't maintain that lifestyle long term. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And then finally, Exodus 22, verses 2 through 4. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. And so, well, it starts with stealing in verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So um, it doesn't pay. Crime doesn't pay. If you get caught, then whatever you profited from the crime, you're going to lose uh, more on the restitution. It's supposed to be an incentive not to steal. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there's an there's a occupational hazard for the thief <laughs> breaking into a place. Uh, that person has a right to defend their property. And uh, part of thou shalt not steal and part of what God has assigned is the sovereignty of our own ownership, our own personal possession. And what I own, I am entitled to keep you from stealing. And so if... Uh, in defense of my property, I strike you and you end up consequently then dying, oh well, I'm not a murderer. Not in the eyes of God, not in the, not in the uh, Levitical Code. Not in the laws of the state of Texas, by the way. Uh, so there's no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. In other words, if you got away with it and I woke up the next morning and found out you stole from me and I hunt you down... All right, well, that's no longer self-defense. That's no longer protection. That's, that's now a matter not for me to deal with in my uh, uh, volition, marriage, and family. Now it's a matter to handle on, in terms of nationalism, in terms of civil government. And I've got to take you before the courts. I've got to take you before the, the magistrates. If I hunt you down now, it's blood guilt. It's murder. Um, if he, he shall surely make restitution. And if he owns nothing, he shall be sold for his theft. And we can't do that today. The ancient world had slavery. And by the way, that was a means by which the vagabonds were taken care of. Um, they would be added to the staff, the, the slavery staff, until they were on their feet again and then redeemed. Remember, every seven years was the year, Sabbath year, and they were released Anyway, we can't do this. We don't have debtor prisons anymore either, by the way. That was part of English common law and carried across to the colonies and was done away with. So we no longer have um, debt prisons. Other than the only debt prison that still exists to this day is um, child support in divorce uh, cases. Otherwise, uh, a thief has no, has no uh, debt restitution. They can order it and then send them to jail for contempt of court if they don't pay the restitution. Anyway, he shall be sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. That's actually better if you didn't liquidate it, if you didn't fence your stolen goods. Then you can at least return the stolen goods and you have a lower 
restitution amount. It's only paying double instead of paying four, fourfold. So there's some laws for uh, banditry, for stealing, for uh, what happens here with these vagrants as you end up with a breakdown in the uh, society. So that takes us now into the worthless person. The worthless person. Another politically incorrect paragraph in front of us. Point three. As a follow-up to the admonishment against the sluggard, David warned Solomon against Adam Belial. I made it a proper name, kind of like with Satan in Isaiah 14. As a follow-up to the admonishment against the sluggard, David warned Solomon against Adam Belial, Ish-Awen, called here worthless person, wicked man. Adam Belial, Ish, as in Ish and Isha, Ish-Awen. The strife spreader. The strife spreader. Here is one that just completely blows up culture. Completely blows up society. Both civic society, religious society. It'll blow up a church. It'll blow up a community. It'll blow up a neighborhood. These Belials. Or sons of Belials. These worthless persons. Now, that's why this is not going to be politically correct. Because, of course... Um, this will be viewed as dehumanizing or some kind of, a, well, everybody has worth. Um, wait a minute. Let's keep this biblical. If there is worth, it is worth in God's sight. If it is worthy of worthship, you see where I'm going with this? Anything that's worthy of worthship is that which is conformed to God's image. That's where we get our word worship. Okay? And this is why I think our, our culture has so bastardized even language itself that what is worthy is, uh, is relegated to human moral relativism. And we redefine worthiness down to the point that it's just simply something that's uh, you know, respectable in, uh, in, in human relative standards. Wait a minute. If it has true worth... We're talking God's standards, not our relative standards. And there are worthless people. There are worthless people. And the reason why they're worthless is described in this passage. The reason why they're worthless is because they are not serving the Lord God. They're actually serving the adversary. And they are detestable. They are worthless. They are useless for any good work or, or, or word. A blunt expression for what it is. Now he's described in this, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth. And it's not exactly the Romans 1 crowd you might be expecting, but it is. It leads to that. But it starts with the attitude that feeds everything else. And we'll see this here. Who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. So we've got mouth, eyes, feet, and fingers. Part of me wants to take this and make a song out of it for Sunday school. I think this is, uh, you know, I mean, what, the kids have their uh, head and shoulders, knees and toes, right? Knees and toes. Can we, can we adapt this for Sunday school? I think it might even be as fun as head and shoulders, knees and toes. Um, knees and toes. I don't remember how the rest of that goes. It doesn't matter. We can do one now with uh, perverse mouth. Winking eyes, signaling feet, pointing fingers. No, we better not. Who with perversity in his heart. Perversity in his heart. And this is the issue with the vagabonds. It's not the tough times they're in. It's not the circumstances that they're in. They're not slaves to their circumstances. What is the condition of the heart? Continually devising evil. Who spreads strife. And this is the, uh, from the mouth to the eyes, to the feet, to the fingers, to the heart. All of this is combined together, headed to strife spreading. That's why I wrote the, the point on the board. He is Adam Belial, Ish Awen, the strife spreader. He is the strife spreader in all that he does. Who spreads strife. It's the pinnacle of this paragraph. 
Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly, instantly. He will be broken, and there will be no healing. All right, so when it progresses to this point, this is the sad conclusion to the vagabond. Similar to uh, when we get to the, the harlot, we've seen it already. There's a, there's, a, there's a sad conclusion to the harlot. Her ways are the ways of death. She descends to Sheol. Likewise with the vagabond. It's sudden. It's sudden, okay? Yeah, how many times do you turn on the news and first thing in the morning and what happens? Well, there was a body found overnight. You know, APD is investigating some kind of a, you know, some kind of a, a vagrant that's been found. That's, it's a rough life. It is an absolute rough life. When they, and sometimes getting into jail is one of the better things that can happen to them because at least it's warm, it's dry, they get fed. Different aspects there. Okay, so we see this paragraph. I guess it's down through verse 15. And we see how we made the progression from the, the, the beggars to the ruffians now to the, to the Belial. And the whole activity there is, is strife spreading. And the pinnacle of this paragraph is strife, is strife spreading. Look what happens in the next paragraph. Six things that the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to them, to him. And you see how that progression works its way through. And when you get to that progression, what's the pinnacle of that paragraph? You see where this is going? Look at verse 19. One who spreads strife among brothers. <laughs> and so we start to see what the theme is that's actually the thread woven through the entire paragraph. Even I think we can even read it back into, if we want to consider it that way, we can go back to that first paragraph talking about the neighbor and the, and the uh, financial entanglements. It becomes a venue for strife. That's why you got to get out of it. The issue on the being a sluggard, it's a venue for strife. you got to get out of it. The, uh, the Belials, man, they're spreading sp- uh, strife. We have to get rid of them. Okay? What do you do with a vagabond? You just keep them around forever? Or do you kick them out? Or... Do you remove them out of the vagabond set of circumstances? You, you can keep, you can stay here in our town, right? You know, <laughs> there was a time uh, when Gary Williams was trying to make his way to Houston and because and, he was told that there was a, a drug center there that he could get uh, rehab and he's, he's walking to Houston and, and the county sheriff picked him up and wanted to find out who this vagabond was. Who's this vagrant? What are you doing in our county? We don't want you in our county. They, they ID'd him. They found out his name, his date of birth. They asked who he was. They, they, uh, he thought, well, hey, maybe I'm going to get some help. Maybe, uh, you know. No, they drove him to the county line <laughs> and said, keep walking. All right, because now you're in the next county's problem. Okay. Eventually made his way to Star Hope and not only got off the drugs, but got saved. <laughs> that was what he really needed. And uh, we can be thankful for that. All right, so. Let's get started here on Belial. This is harsh language, by the way. This is, this is harsh language. If you thought vagabond and ruffian was rough, um, you know, and, and, and in, in so many respects, what we're looking at here, the blunt text of Proverbs is laying out in God's standard what He expects for you and I to live and what He expects for a community to operate without the, the turmoil that the world has to offer. Satan comes along, of course, and redefines everything and turns it all upside down and what's the end result turmoil (laughs) the end result is the chaos that uh, god would uh would spare us god would spare us from all this chaos but satan's wisdom comes along and says oh no wait a minute and so you have entire movements political movements that uh will call you names okay or call me names because i'm the one that's got an mp3 now on the website Anyone can hear this message at any time and say, ooh, Pastor Bob is hostile to the homeless. You know, um, that I'm a hater of the whatever, the disadvantaged. That's another satanic term, okay? Um, let's keep it biblical, all right? And the, uh, the, the, the vagrants are vagrants. That's what they are. And it's a problem in the will of God in the plan of God. As far as criminal, you're trying to criminalize homelessness. Well, no, the homeless are criminal. Okay, it's like the, the illegal immigrants are criminal. 
If you're not going to be Ruth, the Bo- uh, Ruth and come the right way, if you're just going to infest a land, okay, it's like calling a burglar an undocumented roommate. That's not the case. <laughs> okay? You're not an undocumented roommate. You're a burglar. You don't belong in my house. Now, the, uh, not to dehumanize anybody. Here's the thing. They are dehumanizing themselves because they're not operating under the laws of divine establishment. They're not operating under the biblical norms and standards. They are dehumanizing themselves when they choose to not have a habitation. And yes, it's a choice. Okay, It's a long series of choices. And and just because they've reached the end of of a very disastrous road does not change the fact that it was a thousand bad choices that put them there. All right? Now... In God's structure, well, I'm really on a soapbox today. In God's structure, before you get to that road, you have families, you have clans, you have tribes, you have uh, nations. There are mechanisms in place. And if you don't submit to them, what do you expect? Right? If you don't submit to them, what do you expect? So, we'll discuss that for what it is as well. Here's the Belial. A Belial is utterly without worth. A Belial is utterly without worth. Belial is not even an English word. It's a transliteration from the Hebrew. The Hebrew is Belial. So if you want to pronounce it Belial, have fun. Pronounce it Belial. Um, put the accent on the yeah. Belial. That's your Belial. Okay. And uh, the strongest number is 1,100. 1,100, with 27 Old Testament uses. Belial. And every time that it's used, it's, it's never used in a positive way. It's always negative. It deals with the absolute, utter worthlessness. It eventually, in between the Old Testament in the, and the New Testament, in the intertestamental era, it started to be uh, adopted as a title for the adversary. It started to be adopted, kind of like Beelzebub and some of these other terms, started to become a colloquial expression for Satan, the adversary. Well, he's just the useless one. He's the worthless one. And all of those human Belials that we, every one of us knows, okay? By the way, do you not know a Belial? If you don't know a Belial, we'll try to find one for you. <laughs> no, blessings unto you if the Belials in your life are minimal, Okay? But the Belial is, uh, is the absolute, um, the one that is not only in sin, but given over to it. The one that is absolutely serving Satan. It's the brood of vipers that is serving your father, the devil. That's a son of a Belial. Okay? And in some cases, the, the basis for these expressions has been lost in time, but we still have uh, profanity. We have vulgarisms today in English where we call people a son of a whatever, right? And um, careful. <laughs> I'm in church. I'm going to be. I'm keep it good, but but we understand where these vulgar um, epithets have a basis in uh, sacred text, in the recognition of who we are serving God and who they are defying God, who they are defying God, and why they are why they are damned. Okay, again, I'm being good. Keep it in biblical terminology. But you will note his calamity will come suddenly. What do you think that calamity is? Now, we don't ask for this. We don't request it. We don't offer imprecatory prayers. We don't ask Yahweh Elohim to place the person under calamity. Okay? Which in English comes across as a vulgar uh, curse word. Okay, but this is what God Himself does to the Belials of our culture. What happens when your nation becomes a Belial? <laughs> look out! All right. Let's look at a handful of these. You're probably familiar with the First Samuel one. The one in Judges is maybe the best known for people that study the Book of Judges, which means nobody else knows anything about it. So Judges 19. Verse 22, 
Talk about some ugly stories. All right, Judges 19, and uh, yeah, this is this is one of the saddest stories in the whole Bible here. Anyway, I don't want to read the whole chapter this morning, but um, so some travelers. Let's see, verse 16. Behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening, and the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. And so, what's he doing there? All right, um, this isn't his tribe, this isn't his field. He's from the hill country of Ephraim, but he's staying in Gibeah, and that's Benjamite territory. And he lifted up his eyes and saw a traveler in the uh, open square of the city, and the old man said, where are you going? Where do you come from? You know, you're not from around here, are you? All right. And he said to him, well, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there. And I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house and no man will take me to his house. Okay. So there's a hospitality issue is a problem. And this shouldn't be the case. It ought to be like Texas and Oklahoma. It ought to be like, you know, we're free to, to pass between states. And yeah, we're not from here, but we're passing through, but we're all Americans. Okay. Uh, we're all Jews. I just happen to be from Ephraim, and you're from Benjamin. All right. If there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants, there is no lack of anything. And so it's, it's really, it's kind of interesting. So the old man said, peace to you only. Let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. He says, this is a bad part of town, and you don't want to be here. All right. Uh, and so he took him into his house, gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So he's showing hospitality here, even though he's not a part of the family, part of the clan, not even in the same tribe. And while they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain Belials, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we may have sex with him. All right. And this is the same ugliness in Sodom and the same ugliness in, uh, in this. Look out when, uh, when that mindset becomes dominant in a culture. It gets brutal. It gets violent. It gets, it gets ugly. I mean, it's ugly to start with. Anyway, uh, the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house do not commit this act of folly. And then, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please, let me bring them out. I told you this was an ugly chapter. All right. This is what we talk about when we're talking about Belials. All right? Do I need to illustrate any more? <laughs> Belials are detestable, worthless. Over to chapter 20 and verse 13. We can skip by some more of that unpleasantness. Now, uh, <laughs> you know, now we're looking at a, at, a, at a war. Okay? The tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin saying, what is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Consequences for chapter 17 now. War against Benjamin as a tribe. Now then, deliver up the man, the Belials, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. Why not? Well, they've got a tribal loyalty, okay? So they're going to defend the Belial. You see what happens if you tolerate something that's detestable and not to be tolerated? Now you end up championing it. All right. And so the sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. Man, that's, I don't like those odds. One tribe against 12. What are you going to do? And uh, anyway, yeah, it's a bad defeat for Benjamin. Almost to the point where uh, the survival of the tribe was at stake and process there just to provide wives and keep the tribe alive. All right, so that's enough of that. Judges 19, Judges 20. How about 1 Samuel? It's not just men. Here's a girl example. 1 Samuel 1.16. And 
Hannah is all uh, distressed because uh, she wants a baby and her uh, husband's other wife has given, uh, Penina has given uh, the husband their children, but Hannah cannot give her husband children. And so in a polygamous marriage here with two wives, uh, one of them is is uh, giving sons and the other one is not. And that's a, that's a huge problem for Hannah. So she's gone to the temple, she's praying, or to the tabernacle, and she's praying. And as she's praying, Eli thinks she's drunk. <laughs> All right. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you ever pray that hard or not, but or if I ever pray that hard enough where I just seem to be uh, not in my right mind. <clears throat> so uh, verse 12 says, it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. And Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a Belial. And then this is the same vocabulary, just in a feminine instead of a masculine application. Do not consider your maidservant a Belial. I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. And I think there's a principle in that. We, we, I, like I mentioned before, we don't assume that everybody in poverty is getting what they deserve. We want to ask ourselves, is this really a Belial or is this a, is this a troubled soul? Is this a, a ministry opportunity for me? Because um, there's no ministry to the Belial, but there's ministry to those that are in need. All right. So do not consider your maidservant a Belial, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. So Eli answered and said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. He actually joins in her prayer life and he becomes on board with her priorities. And uh, ends up, which is a good thing, because uh, she's going to dedicate Samuel to his service. And, and Samuel ends up being better to him than his two knucklehead sons, which we see in chapter 2. Chapter 2, the son, verse 12 the sons of Eli were Belial's. All right? Don't just assume because, uh, well, that's the pastor's son or the pastor's daughter or whatever. They're going to turn out great. Wait a minute. Here's Eli, the high priest. And uh, his sons are Belial's. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priest with the people, uh, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was still boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Oh, you brought some lamb to sacrifice today, huh? <laughs> and that becomes their uh, choice portion, their dinner. In any event, this history repeats itself too, by the way, because Samuel, the boy here in this chapter, grows up and his sons become a wreck. Samuel's boys end up sleeping with the Levite women and different things. And um, like I say, the whole, the Belial pattern repeats itself. That's why you want nothing to do with them. That's why you drive them from you. And in a theocracy such as Israel, they actually could expel them or stone them depending on the, uh, the uh, offense committed. We don't have capital punishment for vagrants in the state of Texas or the city of Austin. And I'm not arguing for that. I'm not arguing for that. But I am saying we ought to adjust our laws on a more biblical basis if we would expect divine blessing and the more that we have laws contrary to God's basis, we shouldn't be all shocked if uh, we see the breakdown that we see. All right. Still in First Samuel chapter 25. Abigail's first husband, Nabal. Nabal. And uh, he's a fool. Of course, Nabal means fool. And um, Nabal uh, offended David. And uh, now there's going to be consequences for that. And thankfully, one of the young men runs to Abigail, Nabal's wife, in verse 14, to say, uh, your idiot husband's going to get us all killed. <laughs> and Abigail has the grace and the wisdom and the uh, blessing to be able to 
save everybody's life, really. And so um, here's the story here. Boy, this goes back a while. When did we teach this? Life of David was a long time ago. All right. So one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the young men were very good to us. We were not insulted, nor did we miss anything, as long as we were about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. David's uh, soldiers ended up serving a protective function to these shepherds and their flocks. Now, therefore... Know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a belial that no one can speak to him. Okay? This is beyond a fool. This is a, you know, this is a fool plus when you attain to belial status. There's just nothing left. There's no ministry to a belial. So Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys, said to her, her young men, go on before me, behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And so she's able to come to David. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her, so she met them. And David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. He has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. See, David's on the verge of something horrible here. David's on on the verge of his own uh, sin, of his own retribution. And Abigail not only saves Nabal, she actually saves David. And that's the service that she, uh, that she provides here. All right. So when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey, fell on her face before David, bowed herself to the ground, fell at his feet and said, Oh, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. On me alone. You see what she's doing? She's actually becoming a type of Christ. She's becoming a substitute. She is allowing the imputation of Nabal's offense to her account and willing to accept the consequences. On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please, let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this Belial Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal is the adjective for fool or foolish. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. You know, had I seen it, had I known about it, I would have dealt appropriately. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives. And look what she does. She takes it to Yahweh. She puts David back in a mindset where he's not thinking about his own insult. He's thinking about Yahweh. As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And so she actually saves David from a great sin in this chapter. In any event, so it's got a happy ending. And uh, anyway, Nabal ends up dying at the end of the chapter, but not because uh, David commits murder. Ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And so uh, this is what happens. You let judgment begin. uh, You let judgment remain in the house of the Lord, right? Don't take vengeance for yourself. Judgment is mine. I will repay. You let the vengeance be in his hand because you can't handle it. And so, thanks to Abigail, David left Nabal in the hands of God's justice, and God struck Nabal dead, and David gets a a godly wife here out of the whole deal. Okay? Isn't this interesting? Two times, David's involved in a story where he marries the the wife, the, the widow of a dead guy. Thankfully, in this story, David's not the one that murdered the dead guy. That's what makes the whole Uriah thing. So, additionally tragic. All right. By the New, New Testament era, a Belial was viewed as the antithesis of the Christ. I'll have to close with this. 2 Corinthians 6.15. This is why we must come out from among them and be separate. This is why um, we can't minister to a Belial. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership hath righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with 
Belial. That's not a Greek word. It's a Greek transliteration from the Hebrew, Belial. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So if you find there's a Belial in your life and you're trying to find uh, partnership, fellowship, harmony, commonality, or agreement, give it up. You're defying the will of God. There's no ministry to a Belial. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this morning. I pray that you would continue to bless our studies in the book of Proverbs as we orient to secular life based upon biblical principles, the laws of divine establishment, Father, that you established for individual volition, for marriage, for family, for nationalism, Father, for civic society. I pray that we would have an understanding of how you designed this for the blessing of humanity. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.